return. Good morning, everyone. My name is Tim. Uh, welcome to you here in the main worship center. Also to you in Nickel Hall. Good morning. And if you're listening online, we're really honored that you would join us. If you want to take your Bibles, please turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start right there. In the Bible, why would we read, why would we look at the Bible? A friend of mine recently who is not, he does not ascribe to be a Christ follower, uh, found out in discussion with him that he's been reading the Bible. And he started at the beginning in Genesis, and as we're talking, he sort of slips this into me. He said, there's some strange things in the Bible. (laughs) And when he told me in particular what he was thinking about, I said, yeah, I said, the Bible doesn't necessarily condone or prescribe everything that it records in it. And our conversation ended there, but I can't wait to pick it up again as he continues that journey. The Bible is a unique book, and if you have experienced sort of just diving into it at random places, you'll understand that there are parts in the, in the Scripture that are difficult to understand, and you wonder what it has to do with your life. At the ground level sometimes, you know, you wonder, does the Scripture speak to us at all? Like, with the demands on my life, the questions I have, the things that I'm going through, like what does the Bible have to say? Well, this is a series entitled Kingdom, The Story. And it's a grand sweep from the beginning of this book we call the Bible to the end of it, the book of Revelation. And as we look at this, really the world's number one bestseller of all time, we're going to do an overview of this story of God because the big picture really helps. Because what may seem to be unrelated and disconnected in the middle of the forest, when you rise above it and look at the big picture, we find that it actually is connected, that there's a larger connection and it's unified. And this is one powerful transformative story that we find. Skip Heitzek, who's written a real simple book on how to study the Bible, in it he talks about the uniqueness of it, how like it spans 1,600 years, it's more than 40 authors have contributed to it, it's written in three different languages, Hebrew, Americ, Greek, written from three different continents, uh, spanning this long period of time with all kinds of people in different social strata, you've got a shepherd, a political leader, a rabbi, physician, it goes on and on. And Heitzig says, with such variables, one would expect a chaotic text, but we discover that the Bible reads as one grand unfolding plan of redemption. And we're about to find that out as we explore this story connected by the unifying theme of God's kingdom. Something Jesus taught a lot about, but... We'll get there in a few weeks later. Let's begin from the start in your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's how the story starts. And what follows is the story of God's creation. It begins with the word God, which is Elohim. It's a unique Hebrew word. And it's a word that ends in plurality, but... It is always coupled with a verb that's in singular. So like right from the beginning, we we discover that the, the God who is one also exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All are involved in this creation. And God speaks. He says, let there be light. And there's light. He speaks. 
and there's an expanse. He speaks, and there's a separation. He speaks, and there's dry land. He speaks, and there's plants. He speaks, and he speaks with purpose. The sun to rule the day, the the moon to rule the night. He speaks, and he creates with order. Animals are created, and it says, each after its own kind. And he speaks, and he creates with pleasure. And as he looks and reflects after the things that he's made, the scripture says, and, and God looks at it, and this is good. It's good. As creator, the psalmist later proclaims that God is to be recognized as the great king over his creation. So we read, for example, in Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Sounds similar to the scripture we read as we were worshiping earlier this morning. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. So Genesis presents the creator God. He makes the stars, the sun, the moon, the land, the seas, the animals. And lastly, he creates mankind. Adam, our representative, a real person. And now after that, God declares his creation to be very good. The final and central piece of God's creation is us, human beings. Think about that. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. And you know yourself, you know your flaws, you know your weaknesses, but you need to see in the, in the creation story, you, we, humanity, we are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the cream on the cake. We are the cherry on top of all that God has made. And we are so good, we are alone said to be created in God's image. So if you look at verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. When you look at the world around us, there is a distinction between mankind and every other created being. Like, giraffes are not creating airplanes. And frogs are not designing the internet. Human beings have a a rational capability, a thinking ability that goes beyond any other creature on the earth. Mankind has this uh, this moral sense about him that doesn't seem to exist anywhere else. But there's something more that's going on when we are said to be created in God's image after his likeness. In comparable writings in Egypt and Assyria during this time, kings were considered to be made in the image of God. Kings alone had this privilege. But Psalm 8 uses royal terms to describe the position that God has given to all mankind, as we see here in the Genesis account. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. I don't know if you've ever done that. I've been in Saskatchewan when, you know, the, the northern lights are doing their thing and you just look up and, and you just, you're caught in wonder. Dale Allison's wrote, written a book called Luminous Dusk and he talks about the, the, the issue of our technology and the fact that we have, you know, our cities are lit up 24-7 in some places and we're surrounded by lights, electrical lights. We just turn the lights on that we don't get enough time in the great outdoors where, where you don't have all the light pollution and it just we're, where we're brought up into looking into the heavens and the wonder of the stars that are made. He says, as the stars belong less and less to our direct experience, our very hearts are made different from the hearts of those who came before us. Not only have our shelters and omnipresent lights permitted us fewer moments of wonder under the stars, they have also surely fostered a diminishment in our collective ability to wonder. Despite our ignoring the fact the retreat of the stars has not been trivial, what does religion lose? For one thing, it loses its best illustration of the concept of transcendence. The psalmist here in Psalm 8, he looks at the heavens and he's struck by the wonder of God who created those things and his own smallness which causes him to proclaim in great wonder, yet thinking about us, yet you have made him, us, mankind, a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him, that's a royal term, with glory and honor. You have given him dominion, that's a royal term, a royal concept, over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, that's a royal term. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic, a royal term. How majestic is your name in all the earth. In the 1900s, early 1900s to mid-1900s, there uh, was a tyrant who ruled in Russia, Stalin, and as he did so and tried to expand his, ter his territory with terror, he wanted to be feared. He wanted to, people to remember that he ruled in this place. And so he had statutes of himself put up in different places. So that when people would see the statue, when they'd see the image of Stalin, they'd be reminded to fear his rule. We are told here in Genesis, God created man in his image. And in so doing, they're like a a visible reminder to the world that God rules. But we're not, we're not created out of rock or stone. We are living creatures created in his image. And we reflect God not just in some sort of passive way, but as, as, as people who have been given dominion by God. He's given us this ability and this right to co-rule with him in the earth under his authority. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing 
that moves on the earth. We've talked about this before in our flourishing series. Man was, was created male and female, and this role, was, this role of ruling was to be carried out in family, that couples were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Not, you know, that's PG language for make babies, but it's, it's not just so they, they have all these kids like rabbits for its own sake. It's so that there'll be more and more images, more and more people declaring that God rules as they live under his rule. In Genesis 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Genesis 2, 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all that he had done. In this first sweep of creation in Genesis chapter 1, bleeding over into chapter 2, we are shown how creation was a, what, what it was originally intended to be. Man living in right relationship with God, imaging him, reflecting him to the world. Man living in right relationship with creation. Man living in right relationship with one another, male and female, family. This is the rest of God. This is the way the world was designed to work and to be. Genesis 2 then drills down a little deeper into man and the creation, and especially the creation to man relationship part of the story. In verse 15 of chapter 2 we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is man's experience from the, the, the kingdom from the start. The kingdom of God we're going to define as the rule of God and the realm of his blessing. Von Roberts, um, whose categories we are going to use through this series, he's written a book called God's Big Picture. He talks about the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. So we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in the beginning, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule. His word, these are the boundaries. You shall eat of everything except... In Genesis 2.18, we're told, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. The woman was made to work with man. The word helper is Izer, and it's not a word referring to inferiority. It's to describe, it even describes God at one point in Scripture. No, the idea is that man and women will, be, will work together complementary, that they're both created in the image of God but with pr profound differences for the good. And if they do this family thing well, their families will, will flourish and the earth itself will flourish. And they'll take what is in the Garden of Eden and they'll cause it to expand to the whole world so that the whole world will be filled with the glory of God. They are God's people in God's place with the work to do. Eden was a place of work. And the blessing outside of Eden depends on Adam and Eve so we read, uh, Mike Cosper in his book, Rhythms of Grace, says this, Adam and Eve were the crown of creation, blessed with an image and breath given straight from the creator and tasked 
with carrying on the creative work on a scale suited to their smallness, subduing the earth and ruling over it. God placed them in a garden called Eden, and the call to subdue the earth was an invitation to expand the garden out into the world around them. Adam and Eve were the king and queen in a world ruled and inhabited by God who reigned as king over them all. This is the beginning of the biblical story. This is life, how it was patterned, how it was designed to be with profound implications as to how we should see God and how we should see ourselves in light of that and how we should live, if you believe it. Not just believe it, but you believe it. In each of our lives, there's a dominant story that plays through our life that shapes the decisions we make, shapes how we live, how we think, how we act. And we can ascribe to Christianity and profess Christianity and know this story and yet underneath have a different dominant story that's actually prevailing in our life. Sometimes I'll, I'll talk to someone and it doesn't take long and you, you can see there's been an accident or an event or a failure, a disappointment. There's a lie that, that they're holding on to which may be so far from the ideal picture of God's word of, of what it says about God and what it says about them. But it's ruling their life. And it's not bringing them into a place of flourishing. We need to ask the question, what is the dominant story in my life? It is one thing to know the story of the Bible intellectually. It's another thing to have it permeate everything about you, to, to reside in your heart and to rule the decisions that you make, how you raise your family and how you live. Seeing the culture we live in, situations in our culture and, and the dialogue, the narrative that's happening in, in our culture is trying to press us, squeeze us into a mold to think about God in a, in a way that may be different from his word, to think about one another differently, and most certainly to think about ourselves in a way that's inadequate as to how the scripture actually proclaims us to be. Where are you going to hear, where are you going to see in the media that you were created to be a king and queen, that you were created to be a co-ruler with God on this earth? Where are you going to hear that? In the Bible. That's where the story of God begins with us. I began as we, as we started this morning talking about, like, does the, does, does the Bible have anything to say to me about my life, my questions, the demands? It has everything to say. It answers the question of God right in the beginning of Genesis, and it answers the question because of God, who are we? So here's what I think this beginning of the story is already telling us. And imagine if we really believe this. It begins with the fact that God is good. God is good. God the creator is good. He is really good. See, if God is a supreme being, it really matters what kind of supreme being he is. Not every culture sees God as a God who is good. And you'll be thinking, well, I've always thought of God as good. I've always thought that God should be loving. Like, isn't that who God is? We need to understand that that is, a, that is a biblical Christian concept that has permeated our world because it comes from this story. And this story declares that God is good right from the beginning, right from the start. 
in Genesis. See, in, in the Genesis creation story, there were alternate societies that also had creation stories. And when you, when you compare the two with the creation story of the Bible, they're completely different because the creation stories of, of other societies, they, they had gods in their stories, but they're capricious, they're, they're moody, they're hostile, there's violence, there's unpredictability, there's chaos. But in the creation story that we read in the Bible in Genesis it's a friendly world that God creates out of chaos. Why? Because he's good. And he calls what he has made good. And after he's finished making humankind, he calls it very good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is good to the core of your being? Which means he is good to you. It says profound implications as to how we live our life. We also look at this story and we see that I am valued by God. I've traveled a fair bit and sometimes I've stayed at Airbnb places. And, and man, sometimes it's amazing how the host of, of uh, the place I'm staying at has just prepared everything so perfectly. The bed's made perfectly. There's a fruit basket. They've got all the right towels and everything. And you walk into that place and you feel like, this person really cares that I'm here. Like, it's, it's hard not to feel valued by the way they've welcomed you. There's a scientific term called the anthropic principle. And it, it's reflecting that as we look at creation, it looks like what has been designed, the way our world functions, it looks like it's been created, it's been prepared to welcome humanity. Martin Rees, who wrote a book, Just Six Numbers, uh, he was an astronomer and he talked about like just six, con six concepts, like the fundamental physical, phys physical properties that have to be precise for us just to be able to exist on this earth. The gravitational constant, nuclear force. Rees wasn't religious, but he said, as I look at these things, it's almost like it's providential. Yeah. In the beginning... God created predictability, precision, good. Creating us, the pinnacle of God's creation, very good. Don't you think he cares about you? Don't you think he values what he's made? Don't you think he values you? Think about how much anxiety we bear wondering, like, do we matter to God? How much anxiety we bear wondering if other people approve of us. The only thing that matters when it comes to approval is the approval of God. And his word tells us he values you so much. He created a world that you could live in and co-rule with him. This is the rest. You are already valued by the one from whom it matters the most. I am valued by God. God is good. Lastly, my life has purpose. So we've seen that God created with design and purpose. It's beautiful to watch something function in, in the area that it was made for. I was thinking it would be so sad and foolish to see an athlete try to come off um, one of the, the, the mountain in, in Korea, trying to do the giant slalom race in beautiful figure skates. Like that would just be silly, wouldn't it? It's not, the figure skates are fantastic, but they're not, created, they're not created for a giant slalom ski race. 
Imagine, maybe you've seen some of the figure skating that's been happening, how amazing it is, but imagine a figure skater with snow, trying to do that with snowboard. Like, that would just be silly. It's not designed for that. We were created in God's image. We were created with a purpose. We were created with a design. We were crowned with glory and honor. We were crowned to have a royal privilege. We were made to reflect God to the world and take the things that God has given us, the elements of this world, and, and, and what we can think, and take all these things, society, culture, the arts, take all these things and use them in such a way that they reflect glory to God, that it speaks to the world, God rules in this place. Because he rules in my life. And what I do reflects him because I'm made in the image of God. The implications of this are big. What it means is that my life has purpose, but really what it means is that all of my life has purpose. Where do we spend most of our time? The typical person, where do we spend most of our time? At work, right? Or sleeping. But we work and we sleep. That's where we spend our time. In, in the Genesis creation story, I don't know if you saw, but work is given as a blessing. God blessed them, then he said, go, get to work. Subdue, take dominion. Work is the same word in the Hebrew that's used later to describe the, the work that the priests do in the temple. Work is, is an act of worship. When you work, it is to be worshiped. So how I might fix drywall if I'm a drywaller can be an act of worship. It can be an act where I image, I reflect God to the world in the way that I do it. See, the church is not the only place where we worship. All of my life has purpose to image God, reflect him, take culture to the world, transform it. All of my life now has this potential, this opportunity, this purpose as his creation. It's no longer about the money, my self-advancement, about security. It's about where can God take the way that he's wired me and the passions he's given me so that I can multiply his glory in this world. For many, work has become our identity. Rather, out of our identity in God, we are to work. All of my life has purpose. My work, my family. Family now is not an inconvenience Family is a foundation for creating an army of culture changers. Kids who grow up to make a difference for God in what they do. See, it's no wonder why we're big on kids' ministry here at Central Heights and why we want to renovate our our space where we, we build into their lives because we're not doing daycare. We're coming alongside parents to build culture, world changers for the glory of God. So that as they grow up, they'll put their stamp on whatever sphere God has called them into to say that God rules in this place because he rules in my life. That's what we're doing. Work, family, even my recreation is changed by this understanding. I no longer work so that I can recreate. I recreate. I I do pleasure. I play games. I do sports or, or read or walk along the ocean. I do these things so that I'm refreshed, so that I can take out, I can now carry out God's work that he's called me to. It changes everything. All of my life takes on meaning because I'm reflecting and ruling with the king. God is good. My life is valued. All of my life has purpose. So when you think my life 
is most satisfied? How will my life be most satisfied? Well, we go back to the beginning and what it tells us right from the start. Bill Johnson in his book, God is Good, He's Better Than You Think, says this, thinking independently of God is not freedom. In fact, it is the worst possible bondage imaginable to think outside of the purpose and design set in place by the greatest creative genius ever to exist. The mind-boggling challenge comes when we realize that this one who owes us nothing has invited us into a co-laboring role in caring for all that he has made through the privileged relationship of discovering his heart. I am most satisfied when I live according to the pattern God has set out for me. I'm most satisfied when I put myself under God's rule and live to reflect his glory to the world as a ruler who I am submitted to in my whole life becomes worship. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you that you have recorded in your word for us our roots, Lord, our beginning. I praise you, God, for what it declares to us about your nature and in your power how good you are. Lord, I thank you that what it, what it declares to us about ourselves, Lord, and it doesn't matter what anyone or anything says about us. What matters is what you say about us, Lord. We are who you say we are. We praise you for that, Lord, and may that result, Lord, in lives, our lives reflecting your glory to the world, our lives being worship in every sphere that we live in for your glory in Jesus' name. I want to read us Psalm 95 again. Um, verses 1 to 6. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come to his, into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker.